0: Good news here. Bon appétit. This is Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 26. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramaean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramaean, to be his wife. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit to illumine us that we would understand your scriptures Spirit, bring us as well into the presence by faith and by your power of the kind Jesus crucified and resurrected for us. Father, whether we come here this morning near or far from you, would we be brought nearer still, Father, to the glory of your name. We pray through your Son, even Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. True story. Super Bowl... Forty-eight, February of 2009. If you can think back that far, that was the year when the Steelers were playing the Cardinals in the Super Bowl. I was ministering in Texas at the time at a Super Bowl party, and a call came to me right before halftime. It was my friend Brandon, who was also at my church, a good friend of mine. I actually saw him just about a month ago. Still really good friends. He was at a different Super Bowl party. Called me, and I looked at my phone and said, why is Brandon calling me right now? This is weird. So he called me. I picked up, hey, Brandon, what's going on? I said, Jim, I really need to talk to you. It's an emergency. Something really big and really bad has just happened. And I said, okay, can I call you back in 15 minutes? And he said, Jim, this is a big problem. And I said, yeah, uh, I'll call you after halftime. And he said, but this is why I'm calling now because it's it's almost halftime and I really need to talk to you. And I said, Brandon, Bruce Springsteen is playing the Super Bowl halftime this year. You know how much of a fan I am of his. And I've been looking, the the Super Bowl halftime show this year is my Super Bowl. I've been looking forward for years to Bruce playing the Super Bowl. I said, So you really can't talk now? And I said, Will you still have an emergency in 15 minutes? And he said, Yeah. And I said, Perfect. I'll give you a call then. And and so I did. Now, slight exaggeration. I, I wasn't that brusque with him. But I did call him back. I said, Brandon, I I can talk now if you need me. I'm really looking forward to Bruce. Would it be okay second the Super Bowl halftime show ends? I'm all yours for the rest of the day. Is that okay? And he said, yeah, that's fine, Jim. So I called him back, and this was Brandon's problem. It was a PR, public public relations issue. He was the owner and operator of the local Chick-fil-A in town, and something had blown up on him really, really bad. It was not just any Chick-fil-A store, but it was the number one selling Chick-fil-A store out of all of the Chick-fil-A stores in the multiverse. This one made the most money. And what happened was the local newspaper, to celebrate the fact, hey, the best-selling Chick-fil-A could have been anywhere, but it's actually in our little town. Isn't this great? They ran a story, lazy Sunday reading, about Chick-fil-A. So far, so good. Unknown to Brandon, one of his managers was interviewed by this reporter, and little did that reporter know that this manager was not long for his position for a variety of reasons, including what he told the reporter. (coughs) The manager was talking, yeah, we do this, we do this, this is some of the secret of our success type stuff. And he went on to say, the reporter asked, famously, Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays, and... Probably that reduces your profits a little bit. Tell us about how that works. And the manager said two things. Well, number one, here at Chick-fil-A, we believe in the value of work and also the value of rest. So we are closed every Sunday so that we know that for our employees, there is at least one day of the week when they are resting and not working here. A more rested and refreshed employee makes for better employees. So far, so good. But he went on to say this. And also, in my opinion, the fact that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays means that we have a higher proportion of people of faith, especially churchgoers and Christians, that work at this Chick-fil-A store because they want to have Sundays off. And because we have more churchgoers and more Christians working at Chick-fil-A than at other fast food restaurants, we have better quality employees than the competition. That comment blew up. And so on the website for the newspaper, in the comment section, that specific comment by the manager was being savage. It was meant as a puff piece. And here's Brandon, my friend, having this huge PR and Facebook groups during the Super Bowl. And he's having to manage all of this. So he just called me, just, hey, I'm freaking out. Can I talk to somebody about this? And it really was a big deal. And you can imagine what those negative comments were about what the manager said. This proves it. Both for Chick-fil-A and for Christianity. These people are stuck up, so full of themselves, prideful idiots, I'm never eating there again, and I knew it about those Christians and about those Chick-fil-A employees. What's your take on that manager's comment? I'll say a couple of things. At one level, and I may sound hopelessly politically incorrect when I say this, at one level, I hope he was a little bit right in this one way. Not to make a comparison out of it, but I would hope that if you're a churchgoer and a follower of Jesus, that you are a high-quality employee, right? Hopefully, your faith encourages you, among other things, to be a worker of excellence and integrity, in your job! But then, bro manager, help me help you. Don't make it a comparison between Christians and non-Christians. Don't make it a comparison between Christians and non-Christians and say it out loud. Don't make it a comparison between Christians and non-Christians and say it out loud to a newspaper reporter! It was just the doo-doo trifecta that this guy just did (laughs) and made life miserable for my friend Brandon. But at a deeper level, and more important one, as I consider that comment by the manager, he's not even right. In fact, the Bible would say, bro manager, you are wrong. For example, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, right in chapter 1 at the very beginning, This is how Paul describes the church there. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God according to the words and logic of the Apostle Paul here, who works at Chick-fil-A? Well, insofar as there might be a connection, who knows for sure, between a higher percentage of churchgoers and Christians working at that Chick-fil-A store. Maybe, maybe not. But insofar as there is a connection there, who works at Chick-fil-A? A higher concentration of people, Paul's words, not mine, that are weak, foolish, lowly, and despised. That's Chick-fil-A's secret sauce, according to the Apostle Paul. And so if you're somebody who's skeptical of religion and people of faith, and you might think, Christians, like the commenters, Christians really are these judgmental, stuck-in-the-mud people, you may be interested to know that the Bible actually agrees with that critique of Christians. And the remedy, the scriptures say, is not that those Christians need to become less Christian, but rather more Christian, because if you really understand the gospel of Jesus crucified and resurrected, that should make you the most humble person in the world. And hear it this way. If you're a follower of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, among other things, tells you you're not better than anybody. You're just not. And if you are a follower of Jesus... And you wonder, why does God love me? Why has God saved me? The biblical answer is because God wanted to. It was his choice, not yours. I heard a pastor say once, God loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. Get over it. But herein also lies the tension that we're going to be wrestling with here this morning, and you'll see in a couple of minutes how it stems from the sermon text, Genesis chapter 25. Good news. And in the church tradition that I am in, loud and clear, the note is struck, you are saved by grace alone. Grace and grace alone, like the song that we sing. Dig a little bit deeper, and we read in the scriptures that that grace is thoroughgoing, So if you're a follower of Jesus, even the faith that you have put in Jesus is a gift of God through the Holy Spirit by virtue of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you and His rising again. God knew that your heart was hard and that you were unworthy, but as you came to faith, it's God that gave you a new heart, that enabled you to see the truth of Jesus Christ, and then believe in him. So it's a work of God from first to last. But this also is where it gets complicated. And as these questions have been discussed and weighed in the history of the church around the world and throughout the ages, it goes, wait a second. So if salvation is God's choice through and through from beginning to end, then the fact that I'm a Christian is really a matter of divine choice, divine election. And guess what we're gonna talk about here this morning. It is your lucky day. If you're only here at Liberty Collingswood, once in a blue moon, It is what it is. We're talking about predestination and election here this morning. An incredibly thorny set of issues. It's okay if you have no idea even what those terms mean. We're going to talk about it. Very, very complicated. Wait a second. So if my salvation, God chose me, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world, Paul and Ephesians, how am I responsible for my choices? How am I free? We'll get into that. But on my reading of the scriptures if you understand that your relationship with jesus is a matter of eternal chosen sovereign grace by god through and through that's actually designed to make you more humble more grateful and more on mission for jesus so let's talk about these things the election of god theological wrestling two parts number one theological wrestling and then number two, we're going to talk about practical payoffs. So I don't just want to be heading to the clouds the whole time. All of this comes from Genesis chapter 25. And it might not be on the surface. I'll explain it in just a moment. But if you've been tracking with us through the Genesis sermon series, the book has now closed on Abraham. We have been with Abraham for a really long time. From the end of Genesis chapter 11 all the way through until now, Abraham is now dead and buried, and the scene shifts to Isaac his son. But interestingly enough, we don't really in Genesis spend a whole lot of time with Isaac. Isaac is a little bit of a bridge character. So if the main through line or main vein of Genesis is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's son Joseph, the flight down to Egypt, the coat of many colors, all of that stuff, Isaac by far gets the least amount of screen time and is basically just there, this is an oversimplification, couple stories about him, but not more than that, to pass the baton forward to his son Jacob. That's even how it's set up as he's introduced here. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramaean of Panamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramaean to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife conceived. So from the very beginning, we are getting from Isaac to Jacob. And that's OK. And by the end of this story, even these brief verses, the sons are born, not one but two. When her days came to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her, w- in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. There's a little bit of wordplay. sounded sounded like the old charades, right, when it sounded like with these two names. Esau sounds like other ancient Hebraic words for Red, and also Seir, which is the town capital of the nation of Eden, from whom the descendants of Esau will populate. So Esau sounds like Red or Ruddy, and then also Seir, the capital city uh, for the Edomites. And then Jacob sounds like other Hebrew words like grasping or deceiving. And so planted in Jacob's name is this idea that he's a deceiver, So the birth has already happened in the story of Isaac and Rebekah, but really the key to this whole passage is what God tells Rebekah smack in the middle, starting with verse 22. "'The children struggled together within her, and she said, "'If it is thus, why is this happening to me?' So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, and this is new information to Rebekah and Isaac, "'Two nations are in your womb, "'and two peoples from within you shall be divided. "'The one shall be stronger than the other, "'and the older shall serve the younger.'" So for starters, Rebecca, Merry Christmas, and we have friends. I have friends, and some of you do too. Some of you yourselves, even. When first ultrasound, going as the pregnancy's getting moving, and nervously you ask the nurse or the doctor, the ultrasound practice. It's been a while since Emily and I, but I don't. I remember very little of it. Whoever's there, you say, is there a heartbeat? And a smiling face comes back and tell you, yes, and in fact, there are two heartbeats, right? So there are twins, and God also tells Rebecca here, from these two twins will come two nations, Edom and Israel, and there is going to be struggle and strife between the two of them for a long time, which is true, And in fact, the Edomites will be a thorn in the side of Israel for generations. They're not subdued all the way until the time of King David. And there's this famous comment given at the end. The older will serve the younger, which was not usually the way. You know the word primogeniture, where in the ancient cultures and some modern ones, the firstborn son is everything. And even in Israelite law, typically, the firstborn son gets twice as much as everybody else. But not in this case. God is flipping that convention on its head and saying the older will serve the younger. Jacob will be served by Esau and not the other way around. God prefers, God chooses younger Esau, younger Isaac, younger Jacob, I got there, over over older Esau. And so starts the tension from a narrative perspective in Genesis there's going to be a lot of back and forth starting next week, fighting between Jacob and Esau. So it sets up that tension. But I want to talk for the remainder of the sermon less about that narrative tension because we'll have further weeks to talk about that. I want to talk instead theologically because this passage figures in later iterations of the scriptures themselves. God's favor, the older will serve the younger. God is preferring Jacob over Esau. God's favor, God's salvation, is God's choice and not ours. And this gets into those classic theological categories of predestination and election. It kind of goes like this. God, I believe the scriptures teach, has mercy on whomever he chooses to have mercy and passes over in judgment whomever he chooses. It's really, really sticky and thorny. I get that. But this passage carries forward, and this is where I tell you, why are we talking about this based on this passage? This scene, the older shall serve the younger, the birth of these two boys, comes up again at the very end of the Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament Revelation, Malachi, where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Malachi puts a gloss on this text and says, it is as if God is saying here, Jacob have I loved... And Esau, have I hated? Comparative, not absolute argument. God doesn't hate, hate Esau, but God prefers, for his sovereign reasons, according to the counsel of his will, the one over the other. And the real kicker is that this story comes back again when Paul is talking about God's sovereign choice and salvation in his letter to the Romans, chapter 9. This is going to be the thinking cap part of the sermon. Bear with me. The Apostle Paul says, Romans 9, 10 and following, And not only so, But also, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, here's the quote, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And you might be wondering, how is this fair on God's part? That's exactly the objection that Paul goes into. What shall we say in? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, God's salvation, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And you put at the beginning of your worship folder, one of the articles of the theological charter of our tradition, the Belgic Confession, centuries and centuries ago, puts it this way. We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruined by the sin of Adam, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. God is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those who, in eternal and unchangeable divine counsel, have been elected and chosen in Jesus Christ, our Lord, by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. And God is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall, into which they plunge themselves. Disclaimer time. This is the deep end of the swimming pool when we talk about theology. And it's okay if you're freaking out a little bit. It's even okay if you might disagree. And I want to be clear and say this is not the majority consensus report of the church around the world and throughout the ages. So it is my tradition. This is where we are as a church. This is the liberty communion of churches. But this is an intramural question. There's plenty of disagreement and differing opinions within the church itself. So if you're not here... But you believe in Jesus? Are you still a Christian? Yes. Can you be at Liberty Collingswood? Yes, of course. But the balance that I hope we're able to strike here at Liberty Collingswood is that we want to be a church that balances two things, being accessible to everybody, whether you're a person of faith or not, or whether you grew up in church or not, but then at the same time, not atheological. I want to have some meat here on the bones. And it's hard for a church to do both. It would be easier for a church to be accessible to everybody, right? but really thin, atheological, or very non-atheological, but so insidery and heavy all the time that if you're new to this stuff, you think, I need the, what is it, the Little Orphan Annie decoder ring to, to figure out what even these conversations are about at all. Trying to do both. But from within different other parts of the church, the objections to this view, and you can imagine them. Talk about one briefly. How are we responsible? If, if salvation is God's choice, why I'm just not going to do anything, right? I'm just going to be passive because it's all up to God anyway. It's incredibly disempowering. Well, I would say there that the Bible seems not to have this concern and in the mystery of God understands that our responsibility and trying to being called to move towards Jesus and God's sovereign choice and salvation, they go together sometimes even in the same breath. So for example, in John chapter 6, Jesus himself says at a couple different points. All that the Father gives to me, and whomever all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Son, here are the ones that I have elected. And Jesus says, I'm gonna get all of them. But whoever comes to me, Jesus says, and you should, I'm never gonna cast out. Or again, Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. You can't come to Jesus without Jesus enabling you to do so. And we're called to get there. That's why we ask the Holy Spirit for help in the first place. Or the Apostle Paul one more time. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal in his second letter to Timothy. Two things are true. The Lord knows those who are his. That's God's sovereign electing choice. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And if you name Jesus, get moving, get doing, get striving, get obeying, understanding that the Lord knows those who are his. And the basic logic is kind of like this. If the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and in control of all things, isn't he also... Sovereign over salvation? How can you have one that big picture without the other? And there are other things, questions that can come up. How is this fair of God? We're gonna talk about that more in the podcast this week. Can't say everything. Emily's out of town for a couple of days, so post Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem. Our own Scott Flovin and I are gonna be talking about some of these things in more detail. But to me, it kind of comes down to this: you can go two ways as a Christian. You can opt for full grace plus mystery or full choice plus a little bit of merit. And I take door number one. Grace all the way through. Even my being a Christian is only grace all the way through. How do some of those other pieces fit together? There's mystery there, but I live with that. And then on the other hand, I want to make sure that like I'm contributing my own part to my own salvation by, by taking steps forward. Yeah, God helps me, but it's me, it's, I'm, the, I'm the one that's choosing. To me, the downside there is there is a little bit of your own merit and goodness that sneaks back in. But the Bible teaches, I believe, it's Jesus' grace all the way and his merit. There's a hidden premise and I wanna talk about practical payoff here in just a minute. If you're balking at this, in my opinion also, One of the hidden premises as the late modern West has progressed, overall, the perceived distance between human beings and God has shrunk. Where for ancient people and others around the world, and and part of this is because a lot of good technological development here in the West, we can do so much more than generations before us. And when we think about God typically just in a default way a lot of the time, when you tell a modern person that God is sovereign and in control of all things, we get nervous and say, uh, we would be more comfortable kind of if we could follow God around with a clipboard and say, hey, we weren't notified about this, or we have notes, and hey, can, can we work together on some of these things? We, we, we need more input. That, that's just not the view of God that the Bible gives to us. But for my own money, if you close the gap between God and us, you lose the God. And a God who's not completely exalted over all things and needs our input and permission to do things in the world that's not a God who's fully worthy of our worship and a God that lacks that power and that majesty is not a God that's going to satisfy your soul either we are created as human beings everybody in the image of God where our deepest satisfaction possible for a human capacity is to be filled by the presence and knowledge and rejoice in the reality of our triune God that David talked about and prayed about in the beginning of the service, revealed in Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. That's the God that's designed to capture fully you and me. Practical payoffs. This view of God and his grace and how he works in salvation, it's good for us, and it's good for other people, because it's grace all the way through. If you're not familiar with the unfolding of Genesis from here, isn't Jacob a really great guy all the time? No. He's a rascal. He's a real big loser. Big loser energy consistently comes from this character Jacob. And so it's mind-blowing when God says, yeah, I want that guy. But the divine logic of that is I'm going to choose the weak and lowly and despised and say, these are my people, not because they deserve it, but because I want to magnify my own mercy. And the good news of grace is that God is at work to work through and to work in for his good purposes self-serving schemers like Jacob and like you and like me. And that's hope. It is counterintuitive, but that's the beauty of it. We will think in our own imaginations that God should be like a good kickball captain on the playground or a job recruiter going after the best and brightest. These are the people that I want. The Bible says, and if you look at Christianity around the world and throughout the ages, kind of Christians in, say, 19th, 20th century here in the West having some money and some power That's not the majority report, and that's actually when Christianity gets weird because they're strange bedfellows. Instead, it's like the Tom Petty song, The Losers, even The Losers. Those are the people I'm going after. God doesn't go after the best. One person that doesn't have a great reputation right now, culturally speaking, is Jonathan Edwards, and he was not a perfect person by any means, a 17th, 18th century, the most prominent preacher American theologian that there was. And by reputation... He's a really stuck-up, judgmental, pompous person. But Edwards had the same view of grace that I'm talking about right here, and this is what he said at one point. Mean old, prideful, judgmental Jonathan Edwards. And this may be laid down as an infallible thing, that the person who is apt to think that he is compared with others is a very eminent saint. Modern language, if anybody thinks that he or she is a really awesome Christian... Better than other people, he is certainly mistaken. It's designed to humble you. And this whole idea about the older serving the younger, that spins forward into some of the most beautiful biblical themes that there are. And it's striking in my Bible reading plan, I'd encourage you to take a Bible reading plan if you're not there yet. It's taking me through Old Testament law right now, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Yeah, there's some hard stuff, but there's also some breathtakingly beautiful stuff about how God tells Israel, both individually and systemically, you must oppose injustice. And you need to be for the most vulnerable among you, the widow and the orphan. And those aren't just like hallmark card sentimental people that that deserve our pity. These are the sociologically the most exposed and at risk and the sojourners. You have a lot of other cultures in the ancient Near East not assigning full personhood to people that aren't of your tribe or your nation. Instead, the scriptures affirm everybody's created in the image of God, even the outsiders, and yeah, you need to be welcoming and for them as well. That all comes from this idea of turning conventions on their head. The older shall serve the younger. So it's good for us, and it's good for as we relate to other people as well. God is with, God is for what others would consider the unworthy or the unlovable or the outcast. The bottom, not the top. And that's good news. Versus every version of culturally assumed privilege, and I've said this before in sermons, whether you're a person of faith or not, whether you're politically right-leaning or left-leaning, pretty much everybody here in this Western moment right now, in their own minds, whether we say it out loud like bro-manager, or, or not, we have in our minds, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys, right? These are the deserving people. These are the good people. These are not. I experienced that moving up here. If last month was a lot of nostalgia about the 10th anniversary of our church, I was ministering in Texas, like I said, at the beginning of the sermon, and it was politically very conservative. I would tell people, hey, I'm really excited right now. To be moving uh, to Collingswood in South Jersey, and Collingswood specifically is one of the most secular and progressive places in the region. I'm really excited to minister in that context. There are some people down there, and by the way, a lot of people, a lot of my good friends, like Brandon, actually have been longtime supporters for a lot of years financially of Liberty Collingswood. My first supporters financially for Liberty Collingswood was a lot of those guys. But the ones that financially supported me typically were not the ones that said, why are you going there? You're going to the bad people. They don't deserve you. They don't deserve Jesus. Good guys, bad guys. Or my friend Joe Marlin, who also planted a church here in South Jersey, he'll tell the story, I didn't ask Joe's permission for this, but I've heard him say it himself publicly, so hopefully it's okay to say. Joe Marlin was at Liberty Church East, or River Wards, in the Fishtown section of Philly. Then he and his family moved to Rwanda to be missionaries there for a while. One of their kids, who's fine now, had a very specific dire set of health needs that the hospital system over there couldn't handle, so he had to move back here. And he would tell people, as he was raising support, prayer support, fundraising support, we want to po- target and reach people specifically here in South Jersey, not exclusively, but one of our emphases is we want to get, there are a lot of undereducated, underemployed, lower socioeconomic white people who are very far-leaning to the right, and there's a lot of opiate addictions and that sort of thing, but, but this is where I feel God calling me. A lot of Christians living in progressive areas were like, You're going to them? They're the scum of the earth. And Joe would say back, well, number one, not really. Everybody's broken in sin. But then number two, exactly. Because that's where the gospel needs to go. And as we work out the logic of God chose the weak and lowly and foolish and despised to shame the strong and rich and powerful as you come to be captivated by the beauty of that dynamic, what does it look like? A couple of things, and we're gonna wrap up here in a minute. It'll make you less racisty and less dangsty. Tim Keller is a guiding influence here at Liberty Callings, but I actually, before this service, recorded with Pat McAdams for our five golden things feed, it's gonna release in a couple of weeks. Five ways in which Tim Keller, the pastor of New York City, we offer the free book, has influenced me, and he really did in a lot of ways. I'm reading a biography of him. Also, right now, one of his teachers in the 70s was a guy named Richard Loveless at Gordon-Conwell Seminary outside Boston. And in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, he wrote it there, he talked about it in the classroom. Historically, there's been a lot of racism in the church, and we decry that, but he said, if you really get grace, that should make you the least racist person in the world, because you have nothing to boast about to anybody. And for Christians that move in that direction are actually not full of enough grace, and they're insecure in their own identity, so they grab on these cultural touchstones of theirs and say, this is why we're better than everybody else. That is an anti-grace in- influence right there. And also less angsty. There have been a couple of non-Christian voices that have been studying where we are in the culture wars and all the fragmentation here in America. i have said, there might be a correlation between decline of religion and Christianity here in the West, and a rise in judgmentalism, which is counterintuitive, because stereotypically Christians are the most judgmental people in the world, right? But there's scholarship that's beginning to say, when there is more of a, for lack of a better term, God-fearing consensus, and yeah, we had plenty of problems back then, so this isn't just the old days were awesome and now is horrible, but when there is a more widely held recognition that even as we say in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus will come back to judge. God is judge, we are not. There was a more open-handed view towards other people that are different than you or disagreed with you because you don't need to be the judge, jury, and executioner. You can have opinions and disagreements, but that's God's job, that's not ours. But as God has faded from the scene, as right and left cancel each other constantly, Is it possible that we've taken on the role that really is for God and God alone of passing final judgment on other people? And it just gets messier from here. And this is where we'll end. Spinning that logic of God pursuing weak, lowly, despised, foolish, the culmination of that impulse is in the cross of Jesus Christ itself. Where Jesus, who was the good one, took on foolishness, weakness, lowliness, and being despised for our sake. And that's where he became the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world, in our place, so that he might merit favor from an almighty God. Right before and I began talking about 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, hey, most of you are weak, lowly, despised. Have a party, but that's who you are. Right before that, he talks about Jesus in the same way. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, speaking of two cultural categories, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jewish people and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And if we get that impulse of grace, not only are we molded to be humble and grateful, but also missional, because this is the best news in the world. Grace is truly free. As Jesus himself told the disciples, freely you have received, freely give. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after-party, the Post-Sunday Blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at later.